My name is Jenny. My name is Ted. My name is Gray. And, and this, this is Anamorphology. The Invasion, The Visitor, The Encounter, The Message, The Predator, The Capture, The Stranger, The An- the Secret, The Android, The Forgotten, The Reaction, The Chain, The Unknown, The Escape, The Warning, The Decision, The Spoiled Departure, The Sad Discovery, The Proposed Threat, The Conspiracy, The Resolution, The Deception, The Suspicious Resistance, The Extreme Sacrifice, The Diversion, and The Beginning. Diversion. Book 49. The Diversion. Great, what did you think of it? There was a diversion in this one. Yeah. Yeah, there was. Hey, nicely done, Animorphs. Yeah, exactly. Um, this was a really good book. I liked it a whole bunch. Um, it was a really good view of all the Animorphs, separately and together. I know. Yeah. I loved it. That was that was like one of my favorite things about it. Yeah. I have a counterpoint, which is, I think this is the worst Tobias book. Ooh, yes, I agree. Okay, well, that's probably true, but all the Tobias books are so good. Yeah, it's exactly. a really high it's bar. It's still probably yeah. a better than average Animorphs book. Oh, yeah. But at the same time, it's not as good as 3 or 13 or 23 or 33 or 43. <laughs> I don't remember 43. That's yeah, Taylor I, Redux. Oh. I don't feel as strongly about it being better than 43, but... Or worse than 43. I think it probably was, though. Though, 43, I came around on while talking about it. Mm. It'll be interesting to see where we go on this one. Yeah. Yeah, I had a really divided opinion on this one. It had some really amazing stuff that I was really excited to see. Had no memory of it, incidentally. Very excited to see. Uh, But then it also had some stuff, mostly in the second half, where I was like, but what? Why? Isn't this also, Jenny, the book that made you hate the ending of The Animorphs Forever? Because they finally blow up the premise. I think 45 did more of that for me. But they'll never be back in school. Yeah, that's probably true. I don't, yeah. I, like, you I don't, don't have a strong memory of it. I remember it. it. Yeah. And like at this point, I already knew that was going to happen at some point. So it's not like this was an mm-hmm. emotional mm-hmm. blow. Mm-hmm. Okay. It is possible that like, I don't know, I blocked it out of my memory in particular because I hated <laughs> that. But like, I also didn't remember. I, I, I don't remember any of these books at this point. Yeah, yeah, so. yeah. So this isn't the reason you hate the ending of The Animorphs and I can continue to be worried about what happens in the next five books. No, no, no. In general, like, the thing where they blow up the premise is the thing, is the reason I hate the ending of The Animorphs. Interesting. No, I think that this, like, if this doesn't bother you, which, like, you know, we're adults and expect an ending now, it probably isn't going to bother any of us to the extent it bothered poor, poor teenage Jenny, then I think, yeah, this is, this was the thing for me. That's so interesting. Okay. I don't know about this specific thing. The whole, like, dissolution of the premise just really made it hard for me to grab on because that was what I was there for. Sure, sure, yeah. Right, I think there's a difference. A lot of people have feelings about the ending of the Animorphs, as in, like, the last couple of books. Jenny had feelings about the fact that the series (laughs) came to an end at all. That is what I As opposed to going on forever. I think that's the distinction we're getting at. Yes. And I think, I don't know, like, it would be interesting to analyze whether there would have been a way to end the series in a way where, like, I was totally happy with it. Like, that somehow still played off the same things that I had loved in the series before. I don't feel like there probably was. I do think I'm going to have other feelings about the ending. It seems probable. And I also don't, I mean, I don't think the general sentiment toward the ending in the Animorphs fandom is, like, hatred. I don't know. There's, we'll talk about that more once we get there. Yeah. I'm excited to talk about it more. Ted, what do you think of it? 
Oh yeah, other than that it's the worst one um, <laughs> of the Tobias books. I thought that was a good way to sum up my feelings because it's like, it's a, it's a pretty good Animorphs book. It's also, and I really liked the, the teamwork, especially coming out of the past two regular mm-hmm. series books, mm-hmm. which have been terrible. <laughs> um, it's a relief to see the characters that we know and love behaving in a semi-normal way. Mm-hmm. Um, I also really like... In particular, the Jake stuff in this book. Yes, um, I love the so Jake stuff in this book. It like, yeah. So we'll get into it. There's there's a lot of good stuff. There's some bad stuff that's unique to this book, and some bad stuff that's more like what the series wide, yeah, yeah. yeah does as a series. Great. You want to tell us what happened in it, and then I, I can talk to. about the parts that I hated, and also the parts I liked. No, I mean. <laughs> I like. It. I think maybe Jenny hates this most of all, which is a fun. I a do fun think spot I maybe had the most negative feelings about this book, but I loved the first half. So let's let's hear what happened. What a great change from our usual Animorphs discussion. <laughs> this will be. I'm delighted. Um, okay, the diversion. This is a Tobias book, and it begins with the what I thought was going to be a typical Tobias kind of internal debate between his need to be a hawk and hunt and the difficulty of that life and the theme that is always The Tobias theme, TM. (laughs) Oh, I want there to be a musical theme that just plays anytime the book Oh my gosh, I would love that. Yes, it starts with a (laughs) Tobias theme, insert your favorite hawk music here, Um, and then swiftly changes to the Animorphs discover that the Yerks are looking for blood samples. And the Yerks have stolen some blood samples from Cassie's mother of things like elephants and tigers and probably wolves or something. So the battle morphs of the Animorphs. And they think that what the Yerks are doing is comparing the DNA from these earth animals to DNA fragments from blood samples that they have acquired from other places. Fine. So uh, the worry that they have if I understand it, and I probably don't, is that Rachel may have had a blood sample drawn when she was sick with the Yamfoot. Is that? Yep. Yamfoot comes back. Believe me, I was just yeah. delighted by that. Yamfoot uh, comes and back. So they think she may have had a blood sample drawn, and oh no, what if they discover <laughs> in her blood sample the, the DNA of an elephant, for example? Um, we have to go and retrieve the blood sample or possibly retrieve the computer that has the blood sample code stuff on it. I was deeply confused by the logic for this part. Doesn't matter at all. What they do is they break in, they hack into blood banks around the country or around their area to discover which of them has the best security. Okay, they find the one with with really good computer security and decide that must be where the Yerks are keeping these blood samples. They decide they're going to just break into that facility and mess stuff up. In order to do this, they have Rachel morph into an elephant to create a diversion, which she is able to do because the circus has somehow pulled up outside this blood bank in the middle of their city. She morphs an elephant, pretends to be an elephant from the circus, and causes a diversion while the other Animorphs Oh, in order to break the Gleep biofilters on this blood bank, uh, the other Animorphs get into the blood bank, find the place where all of the computers are, and discover that uh, what they thought was happening was right. The, the 
Yerks are comparing blood samples they have acquired from a number of different places <laughs> to samples that they, they have. But what the animorphs fail to remember is that every time they get into a fight, their blood is just everywhere, everywhere. So much blood in this series, lots and lots of blood. And so they didn't need to worry about Rachel's blood sample from when she got the flu. They just There was blood everywhere. Fine. Um, and the Yerk computer magic, whatever they're doing, has found a match to one of the blood samples they've discovered. And it turns out that it's Tobias's mom, Lauren. They have found her. There's a big fight for them to get out, and they regroup at the barn and realize that because they were unable to destroy the computers uh, because of this whole battle thing, all of their families are in danger because the Yerks now have the technology to match these blood samples and find everyone in their families. So they have to uh, tell their rescue their families and tell their families that, about the Animorphs and get them out. So Jake decides they will go to, they will sleep on it, they will make a decision the next morning, everyone votes, they decide to do this, and they rescue each of their families. Start, uh, and the three who need this to happen, it's Cassie, Rachel, and Jake, and they do it in that order. It is an amazing sequence of telling their families, and I truly and truly loved, loved the cat, I loved Cassie and her parents so, so much. Rachel's mom is awesome. Um, and then they get to Jake's house, and uh, the idea is that they're going to kidnap Tom because he's the controller, and then yes. get his, his parents to go along with them. And instead, as they're waiting for his family to come back, um, when they return, it is clear that they have been infested. His parents have been infested as well, and so his poor Jake, his whole family, they're now controllers. And he has to leave them behind and, and escape with the Animorphs. So it's truly heartbreaking and terrible. Um, and uh, while that happens, before that happens, in some order, Tobias goes to visit Lauren because now he knows where she lives. And he sees that she is living by herself in a really, like, very uh, broken down neighborhood that he does, wouldn't feel safe in if he was a human, he says. And uh, it turns out that she is blind. She was clearly in some kind of accident um, that has stripped her of her sight, and she's living there with her guide dog, whose name is Champ, and he's a very good boy. And she is working at a, like, a crisis call center and seems to be, you know, living a kind of kind and well-rounded life. And uh, Tobias has a lot of feelings about what it means to be family and why his mother didn't love him enough to take care of him and why <laughs> she abandoned him. And she's also living near where his uncle was. It's a whole thing. After Jake's family gets infested, Tobias decides he has to save his mom, so he goes uh, and he morphs her guide dog in order to um, be, like, befriend her, and he tells her who he is. They have a whole conversation about why she gave him up. He then explains to her like what is going on and tries to get her out of there, which he does eventually by... He has her morph into Red-Tailed Hawk by bringing the cube with him she touches him. We're going to talk about why I don't think that's true, but okay, whatever. And then she morphs into Red Tail Hawk. They try and get out of there. There's this huge chase sequence at the end and like big battle sequence. There's a old lady controller in a helicopter. I don't know what's happening. Um, but uh, get, with the help of his friends, the other Animorphs who are there for him and are wonderfully supportive and adorable, they manage to rescue uh, both his mom and her guide dog, very importantly. And at the end of the book, 
Cassie's parents, Rachel's mom and sisters, and Tobias's mother and her guide dog are all living in the new Hork-Bajir Valley with Marco's parents. And now we're getting towards the end game. We're like, what's going to happen with Jake's family? I don't know. I think that's everything. Yeah. Nice. Great summary. Thank you. So much happened. Yeah. I have so many thoughts. Yeah. It's funny. It's like, it's a very plotty book. Like a lot of stuff Mm -hmm. happens, but actually the most important beats were the kind of like emotional beats Mm -hmm. while I was reading it. Those are the things that stood out to me. Can we talk about my favorite moment in the book? Please. So Jake has just failed to rescue his family, which we're going to talk about the decision making in this book because I had some major issues with it. So he is like waiting at his house for them to arrive and like they realize something's wrong. He starts to morph to Tiger and everyone else is like, no, okay, they're they're gone. We have to just get out of here. And he's like, yeah, okay, I admit it. And he starts to morph and like from he's like in his driveway. He starts to morph from human to Falcon and they're like, no, wait, you'll, they'll see you. And he's like, I want them to see me. Like, for the family members in there, I want them to see me and have hope. And, like, finally see the truth about what I've been doing for these years. And for the Yerks, I want them to see it and have a warning. And it's just, like, it's so badass. It's so good. They're, like, bearing down on him in, like, there are, like, three cars. Like, his family's car has, like, an escort. And His mom is like shooting out of the window and he's just like standing in the driveway, letting them see that this whole time he like this whole time, his mom has been like, why don't you spend more time with the family? And this whole time Tom has been like thinking he's pulling one over on the rest of the family who don't know he's a controller, like one of the, the leader, I mean, they don't know the leader, but like one of the Andalite bandits has been living with them. And it's just, it's so good. It's so good. I love it so much. Absolutely. I love Jake in this book in general. He has a really great, like, um, like bluffing the, the Hork-Bajir mm-hmm. at the, the blood facility, which is just like, I love this side of Jake that is coming out. Like, I feel like it wasn't really present as much in the beginning. And in the last, like, 10 or 20 books, he's had this really great, like, in D&D would be like performance checks. And so I want to say this performance ability, it's this sort of like ability to carry a moment through his like charisma and just like command of the situation. Mm-hmm. And I just love seeing that. To it's me. So satisfying. I I did see a tiny glimmer of this even back in book one. Yeah. It's not it's not quite the the charisma side of things, but like when they're talking about going into the Yerk pool, Marco's like it's going to be like some terrible, awful like video game. And Jake's like, yeah, but I'm good at video games. <laughs> like he's, he's <laughs> always had, true. he's always had that little bit of like flyboy arrogance that like uh-huh. allows him to bluff through those kinds of things. The thing that, so do we, do we want to talk about the like decision-making stuff and like the more tragic side of it? Cause to me, I, I also love Jake in this book, but He's so hard on himself for all the wrong reasons. Mm, well, um, I want to correct myself first, and because it definitely wouldn't be performance. It would be persuasion or deception. And I feel like someone's <laughs> going to call me on that. Depends um, on what edition. They don't know. <laughs> also, like, he's hard on himself for some of the wrong reasons. He's hard on himself for some of the right reasons, too. Yeah, I... There was a lot of stuff in this book that felt like very bad decision-making in terms of, like, timing and... Some of it didn't even make any sense. And it felt like 
it felt very like the power of plot compels you. Like they needed to like have certain things happen and they're like, oh, we can't quite come up with good reasons for these things to happen. Um, the Animorphs make some bad decisions about them. Okay, sure. That's like, interesting. That's, I buy the I buy the Watsonian part of it, but we can yeah. we can get into it. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Because the thing where at the beginning they're like, okay, this blood bank, we can't attack it because we don't want the Yerks to know we're worried because that will really confirm that we're human in their minds. And so they like they're like, oh, we'll hack in. And then as soon as they figure out which one it is, they're like, okay, let's attack it. And I was like, wait, no, but but you said just before, why Why are you doing this? You, like, you take your time, you, like, sneak, you infiltrate. Like, maybe just, like, take a few extra hours and figure out what's going on and infiltrate. You broke into the damn CIA. Take <laughs> a moment and see if you can break into this one. Seriously. Yeah, or just try to just smuggle Axe in. He can go into a controller's nostril and get past the Gleet biofilter. It's, like... I, I feel like there were different ways to do it and they just really rushed it. And I had in my notes like, what are you doing? This is so dumb. And then when they figure out their families are in danger, Jake's like, let's sleep on it. And I was like, no, what are you doing? What? Just do it now. It's And of course, it's a little bit just random that like they delayed like that one night and the next morning his family got infested. Like that's really just circumstances like events punishing Jake for a decision that like I mean it wasn't that bad like they didn't have reason to think the Yerks had found all their families yeah no I think it's true and Jake calls himself out on it right he says when I need to wait plan gather more information what do I do charge in go for the surprise screw things up permanently but when I need to charge in to save the people I love most I wait I say go home get some rest sleep on it Great plan. Get I get sleep, my parents get yerks. And I was like, I mean, you're not wrong in this particular situation. You're doing great, buddy. Like, I'm not trying to denigrate your leadership style. You're doing as well as you can with the information you have. But this particular plan was not awesome. I don't know. So to me, it's totally the power plot compels you here. Mm-hmm. But like, Jake, Jake doesn't know he's in a story, right? Like, look at f- book 45, right? Marco makes a bunch of really risky decisions that pay off. And the Animorphs have this amazing gamble where they waltz into the Yerk pool mm-hmm, with a mm-hmm. stolen bug fighter and make it out by the skin of their teeth. And they just, they, they you know, have lucky rolls over and over and over and over <laughs> again to continue the metaphor. Um, and there you're like, oh, wow, look at them being so bold and it paying off. But mm-hmm. like any of those missions could end in them all dying, right? So like yeah. it's, it's uh, and we know that like Jake has been and they don't really set that up in the text in the beginning of this book, but he's been so itching for a definitive conclusion. And he's been Mm. so kind of like desperate for like, he doesn't really have any hope that this thing is going to end in a positive way. Right. And the, the battles in like Megamorphs four and 41 have been really like getting to him. He's in a bad place. Mm -hmm. So it totally makes sense that especially like what's the lesson that he learned from the whole, the non-David stuff in the David trilogy. It's like morph rhinos and barge in, cause, mm-hmm. cause a ruckus, mm-hmm. right? Like, it's very consistent mm-hmm. that sometimes just blowing things up is a good plan, right? So, like, obviously in hindsight, you should be more cautious in the situation. The whole thing about, like, what are the odds of the Yerks finding a thing out, you know, through this plan of theirs, it all makes sense. But, like, I totally buy that leaning into fighting 
is the kind of thing that Jake would have done in that situation. And he's beating himself up because of the the outcome. But I'm not sure the decision was that much worse than other decisions he's made. Like, you have That's to accept that true. sometimes yeah. these things are going to go the wrong way. Yeah. And then we don't get a lot of insight into him, the one-night delay. But, again, I think it's the same kind of thing. He's like, I'm... I'm Overlearning the lesson of the last battle, right? Like yeah, I rushed in too much. Now I'm sense. gonna I'm gonna take a step back. Like he's just a, he's just a kid, right? Mm-hmm. He's like a really good general of the animorphs, but yeah. he's not able to I don't know plan things out. He's 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 a very emotional decision maker, mm-hmm. right? And and he that leads him well throughout most of the series. But like it totally makes sense to me that here it would be a problem. And mm-hmm. and the thing that gets me the moment when he says my family goes last because Mm -hmm. they're the riskiest that's the part where i'm like jake you're so wrong-headed because we've seen before in the series that he puts the needs of the other animorphs before himself and Mm -hmm. he's like taken on this idea that like he can he can bear the biggest weight he can like you know not ask for support when he needs it Mm -hmm. right um but I think there's just as good of an argument to like try and get Jake's family out first because there's so much potential for things to go wrong. I don't know. I kind of buy his argument. I mean, I, I like your point about him feeling like he can do with less support than the others and not understanding maybe the role that his family has played in like, I mean, Tobias like really weighs on it heavily in this book. He's like, yeah, Jake's family has like driven him like the idea that he'll be able to save his family and Jake, understandably, doesn't prioritize his own emotional motivation and well-being. Like, we've seen Marco and, do that same thing in a very different way. And here's here's another argument. I think you're right. And I also think, like, logistically, there was the thing that his family was already getting the lawnmower when they, did, when they took the <laughs> vote, right? So I, I guess, I guess, yeah. I guess it makes sense logistically. But the thing that, like, really broke my heart is that when they're waiting and Tobias and Axe are with Jake and they're like your parents, like, something's gone wrong. They've been Mm -hmm. away too long. And Jake is packing and in denial that something could have gone wrong. And he packs his mom's laptop, his dad's golf Golf clubs, clubs. and Tom's basketball, which are, like, all completely useless for, like, having to live in the (laughs) Hork-Badir Valley. And it's, like, it's it's so humoring his, like, really childish desire to go back to the family that he once had Mm -hmm. right so like it's so clear that he as rational as he thinks he's being he's he's just so deeply motivated by like i can just wrestle tom you know into Into the the back of the car and hold him down for three days and then i'll have my family back Mm -hmm. together and And he's you know like what he should have said is like okay i get my parents out first and then we'll go for tom yeah because you know, he's the risky one, yeah. He's the risky one, right? Yeah. I I really love, one of the things I love about the series in general is how it like gives with one hand and then takes away with the other. Because, Gray, you were talking in 45 about how it read like a uh, child of divorces like fantasy. And this book is in so many ways like a, you know, a orphan's fantasy, a child, you know, whose mother abandoned him's fantasy. It's like, well, she must have had some good reason. Turns out she had amnesia. Like, it's such a, like, hand wave, like, oh, yes, of course. And Tobias gets that dream of, like, I'm sure my mother, wherever she is, really loved me, and she just couldn't come back for some reason. 
And on the other hand, you have Jake, who does have this, like you were saying, Ted, this sort of like childish dream of like, if I just get my family together, it can just be exactly the way it was. And he doesn't get that. It gets taken away. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I feel like that's a really, a really good balance because otherwise it would be a little like saccharine. It would be like, oh yeah, and everything they want, they just get really easily. And instead it's like sometimes they get these things that they want and sometimes they get really brutally taken from them. And I think it's a really nice, I mean, it's still rough for middle grade, but it's a really nice balance in that it does give you all of these like comforting like good things, mm-hmm. but then also has this sting in it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's part of the reason that Jake feels that he needs to go last is because what we see through from him throughout the book is, and and in this one in particular, is that that has been his motivating force is saving his family throughout the series. So he can't save them first. That gives mm. him what he's been fighting for, <laughs> right? I mean, it's not. I'm not saying mm. that like if he saved his mm-hmm. family, he would kind of stop and like leave the other animals on their own. But he might lose focus. But he might lose focus. And so I think for him, it's of necessity. Yeah. It's fascinating because the balance that you've identified between needing needing that desire that you can't get to motivate you and keep you fighting um, versus like, like if you get it, right, you're not as invested. But if, mm-hmm. it's, if, if it's that possibility forever, is lost forever, yeah. that's mm-hmm. arguably worse. And it's... It's interesting to see the balance in what the Animorphs are all fighting for and how it all. Because mm-hmm. I think, like, Marco, most of all, kind of got, he got that yeah. wish fulfillment in 45. Mm-hmm. And he's been complaining about, like, living in Axis Scoop. But he mostly seems pretty well adjusted. Yeah, yeah he's fine. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think one of the things this book does really well is show us the motivations that each of the Animorphs has to greater or lesser degree, right? We don't get a ton of, like, Axe's motivations. We get a lot of Jake. We get a lot of Tobias. Um, some of Marco and Rachel and Cassie as well. And I think that it's really well done. But it also strikes me as a wonderfully middle-grade way to do it because the book calls out those moments explicitly. So if this were, you know, an adult book, you might not get a line that says... It was weird. We'd almost traded places. Tobias the orphan suddenly mm-hmm. had a mother. Jake, the poster boy for the all-American nuclear family, was alone. In middle grade, you write that out. You say, here's the parallel that I'm drawing. Do you see this is about family mm-hmm. and motivation? And like, here's what happened to Jake, and here's what happened to Tobias, and here's how they're the same, and here's how they're different. And in an adult book, it's just like, figure that shit out for yourself. <laughs> it's one of the things I love about middle grade, right? Like you get that explanation. And I think this book did did that really well. It did mean sometimes it was the power of plot compels you. And sometimes it was the narration is going to explain what you should think about this moment. But in general, that was, I think, really well done. And in particular, when it came to families and like what it means to have a family yeah. and, and how that motivates you, what different families all do the same and what they do differently. Um, all mm. of it was, it was really a lovely way to talk about that. Yeah, and that, that line you just highlighted with like the contrast, like they've swapped places. Like, yeah, we've talked before about how Jake has both of his parents and it's part of the stability that he brings to the Animorphs. And like, I don't know, I'm a little nervous. Like, I, I'm wondering how that will affect him. I don't, I don't really remember, but I feel like it's not going to be great for him. 
Yeah, I mean, it's so when they when they realize that they can't rescue Jake's parents, there's a bit where Jake starts flying differently. So the mm. thing that 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 Ted mentioned earlier about him being like kind of a flyboy, right? You get that very distinctly because all of a sudden it's something like you know his turns are crisper and he's he's diving closer to the ground and like taking risks in his flying but being very skilled at it in a way that he hasn't before and it was a it was another one of these like really wonderful metaphors for like you know jake is gonna take more risks because for him the worst thing that can happen has already happened and what's that gonna do for his decision making process because you know a lot of the reason that they've been keeping secret and kind of doing keeping a low profile is to protect their families They don't have to deal with that anymore. That concern is out the window. So what does that mean for Jake's decision-making process and for for all of them, for what they're going to do for the next five books? I mean, they have... The world is their... They can do any stupid they want now because they don't have to worry about Jake's parents getting infested. Like, hey, crash another jetliner into the year pool. (laughs) Who cares? Like, let them see that you're human. What are they going to do about it? You know, it's it's like a really interesting... um, turning point I think and it is like it's gonna be it's gonna be fun to see what it's like to have those fetters off like those constraints were one of my favorite parts of the series Mm -hmm. when I was a kid and also just you know reading it now but like now they don't have to go to school they don't have to pretend to be normal which of course was super fun but like now yeah no all limits are off except that they need to survive yeah the the wild thing about that though is that I love I actually I love that the the twist in that they're kind of like blood bank plan, which I think on the whole is like pretty good planning from the Yerks, yeah. despite the like, yeah. like the animals in human DNA, animal DNA and human DNA bloodstream. That part doesn't make any sense. The science of it is questionable. But the, the idea that the animorphs have left blood behind from their human bodies mm-hmm. at all of these places and the Yerks are collecting it and tracing no, it. No, 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 The idea was they'd left blood behind from their animal bodies, and their human DNA was in the bloodstream. Oh, no, that's way worse. It's, it's, it's actually pretty bad fake no, science. No, it's the... It doesn't make any sense in the <laughs> Okay, no, let's, let's circle back to that. Anyway, yeah. the, the point I wanted to make is, like, this idea of, like, the Yerks are doing something that they're closing the net in the way that the Animorphs really can't escape because they've been they've been fighting so hard, and now every battle they've had, which like happens in every book, is a way that the Yerks can get closer to them. And so what I love metaphor. I love the twist that the 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 turning point that outs them is not they find Cassie's mom or they find Rachel's mom, but it's they find Tobias's mom and that that's a way to like bring in this other this other element. It's like a it's like a similar it's sort of similar to like Marco's dad discovers Z-Space. It's like an external thing that happens that kind of like escalates the war. I really, I really like that piece of it. The thing that's really bizarre though is that we had this like simmering subplot in 46 through 48 about like whether or not they should go public. And that is completely dropped from this book. It's never mentioned in favor of them just being in like rescue their families and protect Mm -hmm. the secret mode. But like, it's so weird that the Animorphs were, like, considering going on the aggressive, and that was kind of, like, this subplot. And now their lives have been upended because they had to go on the defensive. Mm-hmm. It's, like, a it's 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 a weird... 
it's a weird zigzag in kind of the arc of the ending of the series. And it, it especially bothers me in like Rachel's characterization because I love Tobias and Rachel in this book, but like there's none of the Rachel from 48 in this book at all. And mm-hmm. it's so, it's so weird that those issues just kind of got tabled and that, that whole idea has gone away. I mean, I'm sure yeah. they'll return to the idea of like, now that we're in hiding, can we go public? But mm-hmm. it's so different if they're, if going public means outing their families first versus right, like this right. more defensive thing. Well, and that's, I'm actually more surprised now that you bring up that very excellent point that their families, saving their families was not important before whether or not to go public. Yeah. Right? Like yeah. It's like they didn't even consider doing what they yeah. have to do in this book. Like as they were doing the like, should we go public or not? It was very much a discussion of like pros and cons of that decision. And I don't remember them spending an inordinate amount of time saying it's going to force serious mess up our family lives. Like, I, I think yeah. maybe they mentioned it, but it wasn't like w- there are steps to this pro- process. And the first one is like save our families. It's also just the thing like in the in the last Jake book where his mom is like, Oh, clean the basement so you you and your dead friend can play there. Yeah. Right? Like, it just never comes up. So yeah. I, I was wondering, at the beginning, they never addressed this. Like, what makes them think that the Andalite bandits are human now? Like, they've had so much time to figure that out. They've never figured it out before. The Animorphs have been getting sloppy lately. Jake outed them to those Trekkies in the woods in 47. Like, I wonder if it was something like that where, like, some word got around to the Yerks. I'm a little bummed we never find out what did it. They just kind of leave it at, the Yerks guessed, and now they're trying to confirm it or something. But, like, I I would kind of like to see the plot where they didn't consider the impact on their families, took these initial steps to go public, the Yerks caught on, they had to scramble to save their families. I don't know, I feel like there was uh, there's more of a plot there involving the going public and saving the families ideas. I kind of wanted this book to be about those things. I uh-huh. felt like the saving the families, like this huge shift in like the premise, mm-hmm. like in the setup here, got a little bit like short shrift because there was also this Tobias has found his mom thing, which let's be real, has no impact on anything except for like Tobias's like I don't know, the family. How dare you? And, like <laughs> I hated so that part of the impact. book. I hated it. Um it I mean, it has impact on Tobias, obviously. It's kind of great to follow up on that. I'm glad there was follow-up on what happened to Lauren. But it also, like, she's not Ava. She doesn't have information on the war. She doesn't shift anything. And to spend, like, a good half of this book on that when there's this other, like, really important war stuff going on, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that it's an invalid choice. I just, I wanted more of the other thing. Yeah, it makes sense. There are two. There are two things that are weird. <laughs> One is, I think you're totally right. I mean, there are obviously way more than two things that are weird. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Greg. Um, I think the obvious thing that that choice does to me is like it really gets to narrow down the consequence thing into like Jake's tactical decision making leads to his family getting captured instead of like the Animorphs as a group, including like mm-hmm. Marco and Rachel and Axe and Jake previously all made decisions that ended up that the sum of which led to Jake's family getting captured, right? So, like, it's, like, really narrowing down the sort of, like, Jake made a mistake and his family got captured. Which isn't really fair. Which isn't really fair, right? Yeah. On the other hand, 
the by far the worst decision the Animorphs have made recently was one made by Jake in 47. So if yes, they did want Jake true. to feel guilty, they could have just done what you said and said like, oh they yeah, one of those campers. Those yeah. Right. yeah, got infested. That teenage girl whose father you got killed. She joined the sharing. Joined the sharing because she was so upset and now your family's all yurks. How do you feel about that, Jake? Right. I would almost be like... A little bit like, told you so, Jake. Why were you making such bad decisions two <laughs> yeah. books ago? But anyway, it's interesting. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I think that they should give the decisions they've already made the integrity that they deserve. Like, even if, like, I didn't really buy that when it happened, but, like, I would buy it more if it were, like, yeah, really bad decision on Jake's part that then had actual repercussions rather mm-hmm. than, I don't know, that was a bad book. We're just going to ignore all of it. But also, yeah, like, the talking while we're complaining about stuff like this, 47 in particular feels like it just didn't happen because of this whole, the new hork Valley. Like, turns out, even less reason to stay behind. Like, the whole thing that Toby was like, we're going to stay and fight for this valley. Toby seems like she's back to the normal Toby we know and love. They seem to have just been able to move to a new valley anyway. Why can't they just move to a new valley every week? Like... I don't, there were, it seems like the stakes for 47 make even less sense than they did before. Also, the way they described this, just, I know that we have already complained about 47 and I'm not trying to make us bring back to that, but they <laughs> do say that they're in, uh, it's, it's the new hork Valley that the Yerks think they destroyed. Yeah, that was a really confusing sentence. I'm sorry, what? Did you, <laughs> how do you, no they don't. If it's the new valley, then the Yerks don't think they destroyed, that's not how new works, what do you, it's fine. Yeah. Doesn't matter. Also, but like, it didn't seem like the Yurks thought they destroyed anything. Maybe they're talking about book thirty. Right. Maybe yeah, that's what I was going to say. Where the Yurks seem to have like where the Yurks thought they'd blown something up in book thirty. Thank okay. You. Wait. 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 <laughs> this is interesting. What if we? I wonder if you if you retconned forty seven to take place after forty nine, it would make more sense in terms of Jake's point of view. Because oh. I was I was making the argument that in 47, Jake is, like, really fatalistic. Uh-huh. So, like, if you just shifted it to be, like, I've lost my whole family, tell these campers, who cares? Oh, that would be, be such a great escalation. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think 47 would take more to fix than that. Yeah, you would certainly, you'd have to do some other stuff. All right. And then also, like, if the Animorphs' families are in the valley, too, that would be oh, wild. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that would have been better. I wonder to what extent they're, like hamstrung by their decision to stick to the character order though this could definitely have been a jake book it could have been an any I would of have loved books. it as a jake book well, yeah because then the lauren stuff just wouldn't have happened exactly. if you clearly would have preferred that right. sure. okay. <laughs> we're gonna yeah. get jake, that. jake has this little angsty thing in the last chapter he's like and then i met tobias's mom she seemed cool at the end, <laughs> the end. nice sunglasses yeah where do we want to go from here before we get into the other half of the book should we talk about how should we talk about the wonderful scenes where they tell their families? Yes. While we're talking about this half of the book. That would be great. It's, they're just phenomenal. There are some wonderful highlights in both. This was by far my favorite part of the book was the, mm-hmm. the conversations that they have with, I mean, it's funny. I think specifically with Cassie's parents, like mm-hmm. that was the conversation that I felt most connected to because I was like, yeah. yes, this seems right. Like the characterization was great. The way that they reacted was so spot on the stuff with Rachel's family. I was very <laughs> confused by what was happening just the whole time. It was awesome. Like super great, very on brand for Rachel, but I was very confused the whole time. Um, and then the, the Jake stuff happened. So should we start with Kathy? 
Yes. Yeah, it was also, it was the most in-depth. It's the one where they're like, let's actually convince them. Cassie's like, my parents are scientists. We need to Mm -hmm. actually show them. They need to understand before they'll act on this. And so Tobias lands next to her mom's coffee cup and starts talking to her in thought speak. She's like, there's something wrong with this hawk or this coffee. I'm not sure. Loved that. Cassie's like, no, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong. He like used to be human. He's like a human in hawk form. Mm -hmm. And... Cassie's mom like goes outside and sees Axe and Well Tobias starts morphing oh, right. and she's like, Cassie, stand back. It's yeah. diseased. And then she scoops Tobias up under his ar- under her arm. She wraps him in newspaper, tucks him under her arm, like, go get your father, we've got to do something about this sick bird. <laughs> I knew about radioactivity. It would come back. Yeah, then she sees Axe, she's like, I knew those like high voltage power lines would affect the wildlife. Which like High voltage power lines do not put out radioactivity. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I'm just. And I was like, "Come that. on! I thought you were a scientist." This, this also leads to what I consider one of the most iconic lines in the whole series, which is when Cassie's mom is like this is starting to come around to the idea that all of this is real, and she reaches out to pet Axe's haunches, and Cassie is horrified and says, "Mom, don't do that! You can't touch Axe's butt. He's my friend." Would you touch Jake's butt? <laughs> the conversation was so great. Would you touch? Would you play with Jake's butt? No, of course not. Then quit playing with axes. All right. So good. I, yeah, that that that's one of the things that I've never forgotten. <laughs> so then her dad comes out. She calls her dad out, and he sees Axe, and he does the same thing her mom does, which is like looks down at his coffee in confusion, and her her mom's like, "It's not the coffee, Walter." Hilarious. So good. First names. And then Cassie morphs into a wolf in front of them. And as she does that, she tells them about this whole battle and about what they're doing and how they've been fighting this war. And the first thing her mother does is her mom's, her mother scooped her into her lap. Baby. Oh, my baby. She stroked Cassie's hair and kissed Mm -hmm. her face over and over. Her father wrapped his arms around them both. Why didn't you tell us, Cassie? We would have helped. <laughs> Breaks my yeah. heart. I just I want that for all of them. I want all of them to have Cassie's mom just hug them, scoop them into her lap, and and tell them that she loves them and that they've been doing a great job and she wishes she could have helped. And I just I loved it. Yeah. I love that moment too. And one of the other things that jumped out at me is like, so they believe it, but then they're like, mm. no, but we can't we can't just abandon our lives. We have responsibilities to other things. And what Cassie says to them is, no, you don't. You have your life and your family, Mm -hmm. and that's all that matters. Which is really, really striking. Because for the Animorphs, it is about more than that. But they're, they're basically trying to say, like, you know, in the scope of this thing, we get to risk ourselves. All you have to care about is yourself and being safe. It's a really interesting... Especially coming from Cassie, it's really Mm -hmm. interesting that um, she's not more understanding of, like, oh, we can't, like, what is our duty to do to the responsibilities Mm -hmm. that we hold in life? And Cassie's like, no, your responsibility (laughs) is to yourself and to me, your daughter. Come with me to Valley. And, like, the thing is that it's it's their responsibility to to her that convinces them, right? Because then what happens is Mr. Kang, Eric's dad, the chief, comes out and he's like, let me show you something. And he shows them a video of, of Cassie basically getting killed in, a, in one of these battles. And 
the the reaction it's like there's a moment of silence and Cassie's dad is like okay we got to go pack up let's do it and they just yeah. move and it's 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 an amazing moment of like exactly what you're saying recognizing what their priorities need to be and it's not about their lives that they're worried about it's Cassie and they're like okay this is the thing we can do to help you fight this battle done like no hesitation at all they just yeah. do it and i yeah. ugh, i loved it I had a little bit of a different interpretation of, of, like, that previous exchange with Cassie than you did, Ted. I feel like her mom was like, you know, I can't leave my job and my house and my responsibilities. I think it was, it felt less like, I have moral responsibilities. and more like, no, these trappings of my life. And Cassie was like, these things, like, really cutting to the heart of, like, what actually matters. Mm -hmm. But I do think there's a separate thing where, like, they're going to keep fighting and they're not going to let their families help, I assume. And I... I want that to come back. Like these are adults who care deeply mm -hmm. about these children and who also seem to have like morals of their own. And I yeah. just having them stay tucked up in the Valley and content to do that. Like, I hope that isn't all that they come to. Yeah. I think I, I, I actually totally agree with you that it's like what she's concerned about are the trappings of, of life and stuff. But I think the, the argument isn't you got to look out for number one and you got to look out for me. Mm -hmm. The argument is we're fighting for the survival of the human race. Mm -hmm. Like you can't help these animals. But if yeah, you like the reason I'm fighting is because if we don't stop the Yerks, all the animals will die. Mm -hmm. Right, like, mm -hmm. and like, it never, yeah, it never gets to up that. All night trying to save all the animals and like trying to like treat all the animals in the barn as much. I as know. You can. Oh, Cassie. Uh, Which, by the way, turns out to be unnecessary because they bring the animals with them. So, like, why did you stay up all night and get some <laughs> sleep, sweetie? So then, Rachel's family is hilarious. Rachel's like, you can't, you can't try to convince my mom. She's a lawyer. Even if we're right, she'll still win the argument, which says a lot <laughs> about so Rachel's much. life up to this point. Like Rachel is so strong-willed and I wonder how much of that has been like combat with her mother. Her mom is, I mean, it is, it's really fun in these books to see genetics at play. I mean, it's both nature and nurture in this case, but like Cassie's parents are so loving and they want to do the right thing and they like get all the animals and they just want to be comforting <laughs> to her. And Rachel's and mom, and, love them. yeah, and Rachel's <laughs> mom is like, there is a grizzly bear in my kitchen. I will attack it with a spice rack. I just, I, mwah, it's so good. It's perfect. And Rachel is, of course, the grizzly. And she's like, yeah, mom, you're really going to do a lot of damage with those bay leaves. And her mom is like, oh, Rachel, I hear you. Oh, no, you're inside the grizzly. The grizzly ate you. <laughs> I'll get you out. <laughs> and then the bit, like, Rachel's sisters are playing with Axe. They think he's a Pokemon. It's like, it's... Okay, I'm calling shenanigans on this. Jordan was, like, two years younger than Rachel. She's, like, 13. She is not. Like, they were like, yeah, children giggling. And, like, children will believe anything. I was like, she's a teenager. She's the age you were when you started this war. Yeah, probably. the age, the two younger sisters seem a lot younger in this. Like, one of them is riding yeah. on Axe, which... <laughs> I don't think That's you are. It's like a toddler thing. Yeah. yeah. They've decided they're going to train him because he's a Pokemon. <laughs> oh, that was funny. priceless. That right. was great. Even though I am a well-seasoned Andalite warrior, they think <laughs> I need training. <laughs> he, so good. He was missing context. <laughs> he was well-seasoned because of the spice rack. Ah, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> but I also, I do like the idea. I mean, it, it, they do seem aged down. But I like the idea that kids are like, yeah, whatever, aliens. Sure. That's mm -hmm. fine. Let's mm -hmm. do it. Mm -hmm. Reminds me of TV. Yeah. Yeah, it's also like, not exactly unlike the reaction that Rachel had. When they saw Elfengore, it wasn't like they were like, well, 
okay. They, you know, they were like, yeah, all right, aliens. We've seen aliens on TV. Yeah. It's fine. Yeah. It's true. I do feel like it was a way to not have to worry about the girls' reactions. Like, they didn't want to have, like, another teenager, like, giving attitude. But, you know, they were working with limited space. I truly do not understand all of what happens in this scene because it's, it's a delightful scene. Do not get me wrong. I, the moments of it that I understood, I loved. Grizzly Bear <laughs> in the living room gets the spice rack, tries to protect her kids. Love all of that. But somehow we get from the Animorphs appear, there is an alien and a grizzly bear in her living room. Then Rachel, as the grizzly bear, picks her mother up, puts her in the car, and says, drive, and her mom <laughs> does. But angrily. But angri- I feel like I'm missing an important step between the first and the second. Because, like, I don't think I would drive if a grizzly bear just told me to drive. Like, I would like a right. little more explanation, please. It did seem like she knew the grizzly was Rachel, so maybe... But, like, I don't know. You wouldn't take orders from your, like, teenage daughter in grizzly form, probably. You'd be like, no. I want... Especially this woman who does not take anything yeah. from anyone. Yeah, she was, I love how much her character came to life in this book. Like, later she is helping the free Horkajir develop a constitution. What does that mean? That is nonsense. Nonsense. Like, actually, slightly enraging nonsense. What are you talking about? I don't know. They could have, like, come up with governance rules. Okay. (laughs) No, I want to hear your rant, Greg. Yeah, I want to hear about this. I just feel that this group of sentient creatures has lived for a very long time following Mm. the rules of a essentially an herbivore herd that lives in peace with each other and their surroundings Mm -hmm. and does that in part because of the way that they have been uh, developed by their creators in this Mm -hmm. case very literally Um, And and in part because they have, you know, once in a while they have a seer who provides additional guidance. But Mm -hmm. uh, what they don't do, and I feel that this is important, is vote. Um, And this whole, like, it just seems... A little colonialist. Yeah, like, what are you doing? What do you mean you've decided? I mean, and and I did, I liked it, right? It was very funny. Like, (laughs) hilarious. But it also did not, not make any sense. Like, they... One of the things that I loved was they, they're voting on what they're going to do, right? So they, they voted to have a constitution. Then they vote to have Rachel's mom help them write the constitution. That's what they're doing. Then they finish the constitution. Everyone's happy. They're going to sign it. None of them can write. So they <laughs> vote to have to learn how to read and write. And Rachel's mom is like, I'm not a teacher. I'm not teaching how to do that. So then they vote to have her be the teacher, and then she does <laughs> It's all nonsense. It's nonsense. Okay, it's so but you funny. know what? You know what my head canon for this is? Is two weeks later they'll be doing something and she'll be like, "That's not in the constitution," and they're like, "What? We don't care." <laughs> and she'll like have a fit. So I yeah, really funny. Loved all of this. I think the I I'm, I'm with you, Gray. I think the offensive thing is the like the sort of unquestioning like. Of course you would want mm, the Constitution, mm-hmm. because the Constitution is the ideal form of governance. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's it's very, like, 90s and American exceptionalism. Yeah, that's and, legit. And, yeah. and, like, it, uh, I think that it would be super interesting if you treated the issue a little more seriously. One, Toby is a great benevolent dictator yeah. of the hork Society, 
and probably isn't okay with them self self governing. So she in knows a that they way. won't be able to read the Constitution. <laughs> no, right. But like, I'd love to see that explored in more sure. detail. I there's probably a case to be made that Ava's experience becoming a citizen could have like explains to the Horkajir about different oh, types of governance, and they might be point. inspired by her story. Right, like. I'd love to see kind of more depth there. Yeah. But yeah. like as a throwaway joke, it's very funny. And the offensive thing is like it, that it's so unquestioning. Right. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. That's really where I was coming from. was like, what are you talking about? You need a constitution. Like. I, yeah. I also just, I like the idea, like, right. Jenny said Cannon is great. It's just like, yeah, this, <laughs> this is like a great way to pass the time. <laughs> like, and, that was fun. <laughs> right. Probably it's very fun to um, annoy Rachel's mom. Oh, Yeah. Yeah, that's if it's just like we're entertaining ourselves by getting this suburban white lady to write a constitution, we're going to completely ignore. I love it. Hilarious. And, right, and great it's, way it's to also like there's a little bit of evidence that like the Horkbajir all have different personalities, and only some of them are congregating mm-hmm. around Rachel's mom. Like some of the Horkbajir are hanging out with Cassie's parents. You yeah. know, like I love. Yeah, it was the line like the Horkbajir were all like in love with Cassie's yeah. parents, and I was like, yes, so are we. They're wonderful, and especially like the kids, the like baby Horkbajir were super in love with Cassie's mm-hmm. parents. Rachel's joke of like the Horkbajir are only talking about like bark and what kinds you can you know what kinds and what quantities can <laughs> yeah. you cut off of trees like that's all that's all hilarious and very plausible to me that the Horkbajir would want to create a system of rules around oh. around yeah there's a debate between harvesting. the deciduous and the coniferous Horkbajir <laughs> yes. I don't know what that means but I love it it's hilarious yeah, it's, it's fantastic <laughs> ridiculous mm. so yeah should we talk about uh, the second half of this book all the all the Lauren stuff. Jenny, would you like to get us started? I want to hear what you have to say. On the theme, before we get into it, this is like, like you said, this is a very plotty Tobias book, Mm -hmm. and the theme seems to be Tobias has mommy issues, but it's like such a shallow take that I don't care at all. And like, maybe, maybe, maybe this is, maybe this hit home for you a little more than it did me, Gray. Um, But the, the bit that I love is there's, he has this whole bit where he's like, now I know where my mom lives, but I'm not going to go look at her because I'm too psyched out. And he thinks to myself... I'm Tobias. I'm a boy trapped as a bird, and I fight aliens, and I've been in wars, and I've traveled through time, but I can't face my own mother. And I'm like, this is Animorphs in a nutshell. (laughs) This is is peak Animorphs. It's so good. That's exactly how I felt about it. I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Each of you has had one of these moments in one of your books where I'm like, really? That's the, okay, sure. (laughs) I'm just, now I'm just accepting things. It's fine. Well, my objections, I was not, I was not in an accepting mood. My objections are threefold. Uh, there's the logistics angle, the ridiculous amnesia wish fulfillment angle, and the ableism angle. Wonderful. Hit me. <laughs> can, I, can I add that moms are supposed to put themselves in harm's way oh for their children gosh, above all yes. else? But I, I also had that, that complaint. Like, it's a totally reasonable... Thing for Tobias to think as like a teenage boy who's never had a mother who cares about him and he like sees these moms being protective and like you know it's it's a it's a cultural idea he could have absorbed it's not questioned by the book in any way and is in fact like dramatically reinforced in a way that's just not not great it's not great yeah yeah, I also, I felt like the, and this is this gets into a little bit of the amnesia wish fulfillment thing, but like, there are so many great reasons why Lauren might still live in the same city as her son that she she gave away at a time in her life when she didn't want to have a child. But like, 
it doesn't have to be this like, oh, she is the perfect mom because the only reason that she didn't want to raise me was because she had this tragic total amnesia situation. Yeah. It's like, it's so weak. Like, yeah. moms make decisions for a lot of reasons. And yeah. to reduce and it to this is is annoying. And this idea that she can't, like, she's, her life, it's made, like, like perfect, but also like very incomplete and bleak like she mm-hmm. she doesn't really she hasn't developed a new life really mm-hmm. all she like there's it's explicitly pointed out like her house is bare there's like nothing in it and like we'll get to the ableist part like yes she's blind she's not gonna like decorate if she lives alone but she would have stuff like she her life wasn't allowed to like move on she's only allowed to have yeah. this completely selfless job where she works at this helpline and it wasn't that she chose a different life, still has conflicted feelings. It wasn't even like this would have been an interesting opportunity for some sort of supernatural shenanigans that like could still mm-hmm. have like emotional angst attached. Like she had this weird time travel, married an alien backstory. And then a car crash and amnesia are the reason that she didn't raise I know, her I was so annoyed. Like, and they don't even, Tobias at the end is like, yeah, I haven't told her about Elfinger yet. Like, <laughs> What? Why haven't you... What is wrong with you? Yeah. Okay, I want you to talk about all of your three points, but just... I <laughs> I kind of skated over that a little bit as I was reading it. Honestly, like, when you said the second half of this book, I was like, oh, yeah, when they, like, go and rescue their families. No, no, the second half of the book is all Lauren. Yes. And I think part of the reason that I skated over it was that it has... It's very, like, adventure right? Like, they're going on this mission to it's rescue... It's a good caper. Yeah, yeah, it's a great caper. Mm. I mean, it's a caper. It's a caper. <laughs> All right. I'm going to defend the caper. Well, but... the fight scene was confusing and dumb. Marco Marco has the controllers slip on a bucket of Hot Wheels, and then he rides a scooter as a gorilla to, like, clothesline them and you says, know, I that love scene scooters. Was great in a lot that's of ways. amazing. You can't tell me that's not a good Animorphs caper. Okay. Yes. The mission to save her had. So many issues. Okay, first of all... <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Let Gray finish oh, your okay. point. okay, I'm sorry. Gray, finish your point. And then we'll complain about the logistics. Because I think my my major complaint with it was that going into that second half of the book, I it turns out I have had a view of what has been happening with Lauren in my head really? that was very not borne out. And uh-huh. that is not the fault of the books. That is the fault of my own headcanon. Um <laughs> And it was a lot darker. And like my my headcanon was that because Lauren went through this experience, and we know that the Alamist's ability to like wipe memories is like shoddy to say the least, that she would have had memories or some, you know, like in it, we find out she does have like flashes of blue that tell her there are aliens or whatever nonsense. But my thought was that if she's having these kind of flashbacks and has been living in a really in an in an area and in a it, from a community from a lower SES that she is going to be someone who our society would think of as in need of serious mental health interventions mm-hmm. and so the headcanon that i had was that she was basically and you know again i'm reading this as an adult in the in the 20 teens and 2020s so in my head she was a victim of the opioid epidemic and she's you know a a drug addict who's having these flashes of that aliens are real and nobody believes her and 
that she is unable to care for Tobias because she is, you know, either homeless or, or in some kind of shelter situation where she cannot care for him because she cannot care for herself. And that is a very heartbreaking backstory. And um, this is much happier. And I like happy stories. So yay. Um, but it also because of where Tobias is from and what we know about his family and, and his, his uncle and aunt and kind of how he's been taken care of and we learn in this that he's like on the free lunch program, which like I was too. Like that's a very different view of it than like actually middle class lady doing fine but ha doesn't care where she lives because she can't see it. Like those are very different paths and I was, as it turns out, relatively invested in my own headcanon. Um, again, not the fault of the books at all. Totally my brain. But I thought that this was kind of a cop-out. Yeah, as you said that, Gray, I was realizing that, like, one of the reasons the car crash thing bothered me so much is, like, it's in violation of, like, the small world, like, very economical way that these books use mm. events. Like, and some of that has been, like, that's a little too much coincidence, but some of it is, like, okay, that's good plotting, where, like, if... What we know about her is that, or like, there's this very exceptional thing about her where she had a child, with, she went to space, yeah. had this whole adventure with aliens, married an alien, had a child with him, then had him taken away and her memory erased, and then disappeared out of Tobias's life, and you're telling me those two things are unrelated? Right. Right. Like, she just, oh, she just randomly got in a car accident, it was just a fluke. Like, fluky plotting like that is really weird like mm -hmm. or when the alchemist <laughs> says he erased her memory what he meant is he got her into a horrible car crash ted ted all right head cannon accepted wow i didn't hate that guy until just now i did yeah. and yeah that seems like the kind of <laughs> he'd pull when yeah he like like removing her memory was too big an intervention all he could do was like nudge the car a little bit also, the total amnesia doesn't work like this. So maybe he did the maybe he did the car thing just as cover for his. Mm, mm -hmm. You know, know what else doesn't work like this? Just be, I mean, this is so not important in the grand scheme of things, and I'm sorry that I'm still not talking about um, Jenny's rants, and I want to get there oh, really we've fast. Gotten to them a little bit, yeah, but yeah, we'll get Cassie says morphine can fix injuries because all the information needed to recreate the cell is stored in your DNA, but memories. How are those stored? As electrical impulses? As part of your soul? When they're gone, maybe they're just gone. Not how anything works, Cassie. <laughs> I don't know. That's fair. She thinks that. Like, Yeah, but it's given as the explanation for you're why right, right. memories didn't come back. Like, it's dumb. It is dumb, but I... It's fine. Like, clearly the people in this universe have souls or something like it. And so... It's true. There is Memories could be in there. Yeah. Like, I don't know. Like... Whatever. I do believe I morphing did. wouldn't fix memories. I rolled my eyes a lot at that. Okay, so Jenny, tell me about the... Start with the logistics. Well, that, okay, so I think we've largely covered the car crash amnesia rant. where, But we can get into it a little bit more. It was just, like, very emotionally unsatisfying for Tobias, I felt like. So the logistics rant. Oh, my gosh. So I felt like there were some hints of this in the Animorphs rescuing their families thing where they, the badness of their decisions were perfectly geared towards Jake losing his family, you know. Mm -hmm. But this thing where <laughs> the Yerks have figured out that Tobias's mom is related to one of the Andalite bandits. 
slash. At this point, I guess they don't think they're Andalites. They don't. All they do is put her home under surveillance. Like, very light surveillance. It's not like it's like a... I mean, I guess there's a van. But, like, they're just hanging out there, I guess, to see if the Animorphs show up. But while they're hanging out there to see if the Animorphs show up, they don't infest her? Why not? They're not vampires. They're allowed to go in her house. Like, they could so easily infest her, and then the trap would be much better. So it's completely bizarre that the Yerks don't do that. The Yerks do decide to take her three days later, exactly when the Animorphs have decided to rescue her. Complete nonsense. Now let's talk about what the Animorphs do. So Tobias is like, I'm just going to go, like, see what my mother's up to. And then he decides she's not probably not a controller. Seems fairly valid. It doesn't seem like she's a controller. It's possible she is a controller. They, You know what they could do? You know what they were planning to do with Tom? Take her. Kidnap her. Bring her to the Horkbajir Valley. Leave her in confinement for three days. Then the Yerk will die if there's a Yerk. Do not leave her in her house under Yerk surveillance for two days and just make sure no one goes in and out. And that means she's not a controller. That That is nonsense. And then, and then, let's talk about the way that they get her out, which also touches on the ableism rant. There is no reason for them to give her morphing power. This thing where they're like, how will we get her out? How do you get a blind woman out? First of all, rude. Like, I mean, I'm often joking a little bit when I say that, but like, that is extremely offensive. Like, you get her out the way you get any person out, and you know how you do it. You use a freaking hologram. There's, like Mr. King says at the beginning of this book, he's like, whatever you need, we will help. He's there when they're rescuing their other families. He puts up holograms so that no one can tell what's happening. Oh no, the house is under, like, relatively minor Yerk surveillance. You know how you get past surveillance? With the hologram. You don't give her morphing power so that she can fly out. They have, like, never given morphing power to anyone for this kind of reason. Like, they sort of did a little bit for David. It was a huge mistake. They gave it to Aftran for, like, this totally other reason. They had a lot of reasons to trust her. Like, this logistical bind where, oh, no, we can't get her out unless we give her morphing power is fake. It's completely fake. And they gave, they did it so that she wouldn't be blind anymore. And that segues into the ableism rant. I don't know. I think maybe in the next Tobias book, book 55, we're going to have to deal with the fact that Lauren betrays the Animorphs and Tobias has to trap her <laughs> as a rat forever. I'm not writing that one. <laughs> Good, because I'm not reading that one. Okay, no, ableism rant. Yeah, I yeah. mean, I don't want to dominate the rants, though. So. The, I, I also, this bothered me a lot. Yeah, um, there were a lot of ways in which this was ableist. Just, like, just like millions of ways. It, this is So, the mom stuff bothered me a little bit more than the ableism stuff. I think, I mean, the series is, again, I think maybe I'm a little more inured to the ableism in the Animorph mm. series. And we're not done with it. Um, sorry, Gray. <laughs> uh, that is accurate. The, so, when she and Tobias have this sit down, she's like, you know, and you didn't need a crazy blind woman in your life. Which is, like, such a disappointing way for Lauren to reduce herself to her yeah. disability. Um, also, the bit where they give her the morphing power allows them to have this horrible, fake, 
moment of drama where Lauren is like, it's so cool to have eyes as a bird. I will not demorph to save my life because I would rather die than be blind. Which, again, she seems like she's doing just fine being blind and she's like built a life for herself. So like the idea that like, of course, it will be so traumatic to have your sight back that you would rather die than be blind again. Incredibly offensive. Yep. And like having this portrayal of like a blind woman, she's like both pitiable for like where she lives and how empty her life is but she's also this heroic figure that like all she does Mm -hmm. all day is be on this crisis line and people bully her but she's so used to it she handles it perfectly and she really loves her dog because we love people who love dogs it's just like she's reduced to this like pitiable hero stereotype of disability that is like uh, i don't know it's just it's so lazy and and like um it's so clear that the disability is being used as a way to it's like being used as a shortcut and a cliche and it's not at all really dealing with um what it's like to be a disabled person yeah she doesn't integrate her blindness into a full life she it's like it's very much like her life is on hold and it's so the question of like curing disability in a sci-fi world in in you know any any fictional work is complicated like i don't know that it's necessarily a terrible thing to have an individual character who would rather not have their disability like people's attitudes towards their disabilities vary like some people feel like it's an important part of them we see none of that in lauren she's not like noah for the last 13 years i've been or, like, however many years, I've, like, I've lived without my sight. This is who I am now. Like, like, it's okay if that's not her attitude towards it. I was just going to say, imagine, imagine the story. It would be, I think, an incredible story if she had to choose between (gasps) being a Nothlet and going back to being a blind woman. And if she was actually conflicted about that, right, and was like, like, oh, I would, like, you live this life, Tobias. I could live this life, too, right? Like, that would at least be interesting. But this is like, there's no, there's no stakes to it, right? It's like, that's her true. life, her, in her life, her blindness is a problem and the book solves that problem. Mm. It's like, it's really, it's really I gross. thought you were going to say, uh, like, a scenario in which she had to choose between morphing and like somehow, like a scenario where morphing actually would be the only way to save her and like staying as she is, like as this person that she is Yeah, now. exactly, like, exactly. Like choosing, like she doesn't actually that want would also to be give better. up her blindness. Maybe that, I mean, I don't trust them to handle that well. Like, well, so I don't think, I don't think it is necessarily a problem in a work of fiction to have a character who objects to their own disability. I think that that's perfectly fine. But in, and I should say, like, I uh, do not identify as having a disability. Like, this is something I've read about, but like, please, lots of grains of salt. But like, in, like, the book didn't have to construct this narrative the way it did, and kind of looking at the broader picture of how disability is treated in this book and in the series so far as a whole, there is definitely a very strong thread of blindness is a terrible curse. Like, that's the reason that Aftran, like, that's what Aftran uses to justify the Yerks taking slaves. Mm -hmm. Like, that better to do almost anything else than be blind is such a big thing. Tobias says in this book, oh, the Yerks don't want to infest her because she's blind, so Mm -hmm. she's useless to them, right? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man, is that actually, like, they... That's what Tobias' theory. Yeah, Yeah. 
maybe that is why the like weird logistical hole where like just infest her. They didn't do it because she was blind. Okay, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But this this series has never portrayed a character with a disability as like a full person. One shows up, she's living this like very bare bones life where she doesn't interact with anyone, just goes to her job and like doesn't have anything personal in her house and doesn't care where she lives because apparently vision like is the key to everything. And if you can't see where you live, you don't care about anything else. Like, and she couldn't raise her son because she was blind. It's a little more complicated than that. It seems like she had other issues that made it difficult to raise her son. But like this, and then the the most important thing is that they take the disability away and the narrative is like manipulated so that they have an excuse, which was very flimsy, to take her disability away. And this idea that disability can't be part of a full life, that it can't be like a, an important part of your identity, that all it is is like something that's impeding you from actually living as like a normal human. Like it's just incredibly short-sighted, I'm going to say, and offensive. Yeah. And the the book, the way the ending works, in the final chapter, you get Lauren and Champ throwing a frisbee, and then, like, it's supposed to be this, like, bittersweet ending where it's, like, the sweet part is she gets her body back and her vision back, and now that's all perfect, but it's bitter because her memories were stored in her soul and she doesn't get those back, which is, like, it's completely the opposite. Like, the... I don't know the like you were saying the life that she has lived is so much more than the fact that she was tragically blinded and then miraculously cured. Or it cured. should have been. It should have been. Yeah. Right. So yeah. Yeah. The book wants it to tell the simple story about tragedy, a tragedy made you blind and your half alien bird son cured you, <laughs> which is not that yeah, interesting. Which is just like, completely ignoring the dozen plus years of like real life it's like it was just on pause I think I've said that already I just find it so objectionable I mean and you should like it is yeah it is one of the bigger yikes books in that way mm -hmm. that the this is the way that they're treating her in general and blindness in particular and it's I think particularly offensive because her life actually seems pretty good yeah. <laughs> From what we see of it, right? I mean, and, and that's not to say that, like, she can't have whatever complicated feelings she has, but, like, she has a job. She has a meaningful job where she's making a difference, right? She's working in this crisis hotline. What we see of that is that she is clearly helping people. She has, she has a dog she loves. She has a, a world, and she does not object to leaving that behind like Cassie's parents do, and I think partially because the implication is it can't really be a full life because, see, she's blind. Also, yeah. right, it's so visceral when she gets the hawk vision, right? Yeah. It's like it's supposed to be that, like I was saying, sight matters more to her than actually surviving. Right. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, it's like such mm -hmm. a I have uh, to speculate, overblown. like, Grant must, like, I don't know, one of them has, like, a particular horror of blindness. Like... Maybe that's, like, putting too much on individual, like, psychology and not societal stuff that everyone has absorbed. But, like, the fact that blindness comes back over and over again in this series as, like, oh, no, but they're blind. Like, I don't know. 
I, I feel like they they definitely like this is the, like a personal bugbear maybe for them. I, another personal bugbear for them is the tragedy of beautiful women who have been physically scarred because yeah we've had Taylor we've had Ava, Ava. and Visser here's again like Tobias is like oh she's my beautiful blonde mother and then like oh gosh she's been she I see these horrible burn marks on her but face then at the and end, her blonde hair like is shiny and straight on all like all over her yeah. head that part annoyed like, the what? crap out of yeah. me and it was like and now look she's beautiful again and I was like first of all <laughs> and second of all like speaking personally scars can be beautiful yeah thank you and yes. also like it does not require fixing and mm-hmm. just like the blindness, it felt like the morphing was like, look, we have a solution for all of your physical problems. Like, no, f- off. I feel like there's some really interesting territory that they could have covered with the intersection of like morphing and like disability caused by accident, um, where like she could have really complicated feelings about it. Like yeah. we were saying, like she could like no I who I was with my scars who I was with my blindness was who I am like I yeah I wanted to survive but like this isn't this isn't just like the magical happy ending and they didn't they didn't do that at all also like plenty who knows who knows which of the people you give the ability to morph had a necessary surgery when they were very young <laughs> that that keeps them alive right like oh you gosh. give someone the power to morph and then Either when they morph back, they die immediately, or their normal body becomes like a ticking time bomb because, mm-hmm. like, they had a heart defect or something. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes, sometimes what is oh, natural that. is oh, not actually conducive to a good life, right? So this whole fiction yeah. of like, oh, your body is pure, and then like bad things happen to it, and there then it has been fallen, and the morphing can cure it. It's mm-hmm. all nonsense. That our bodies are somehow like what like meant to be something and don't reflect our interactions with the world and yeah. like what yeah. we make of them. Just like I'm imagining there are five children at the beginning of the story. Let's ignore Tobias because his family does not pay that much attention to. But like uh-huh. every child that I know has gotten into some kind of injury that has left a mark uh-huh. on their body, right? And again, speaking very personally for my scarred ass face, like I'm just imagining if I came home at 13 with all of my facial scars gone, my parents would have been like, what the f*** happened to your face? <laughs> like, and like, I'm just imagining, like, Rachel must have thrown herself out of a tree at some point and, like, gotten, you know, stabbed through the arm by, like, a mm-hmm. fence post, as and all of us did. we talked about circumcision? Jake is Jewish. <laughs> I think we did talk about it and then we cut it out of one of our early episodes. We were cowards back then. I'm leaving it in. I just Okay, so I think Just like is... just like you would do with the power of morphing. I I do think that like there's 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 headcanon or like fanon in the Animorphs fandom that like um, I think I mentioned this in the podcast before that like things that you think of as just part of yourself. No. That makes it even worse <laughs> because that means Lauren, her vision of herself never included her blindness. Oh Ugh. man. Barf. Yeah. Okay. Yes. But, like, yeah. The idea that like, no, I, I got it. Yeah, you, yes. you always think of yourself with these scars on your face. So when you morph back, you'll still have them. Yeah. But like, if I had to remember, mm. you know, if, I don't know. How much, yeah. Yeah. Know how like much it's not in my DNA. And if I had to be like, Okay, when I go back, 
All right, there's one. Yeah, that's but your I haircut like, isn't in your DNA either. It's like, very like what about like, all these like celebrities? What happens to like your nose job and Botox, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. any any like middle aged celebrity is suddenly going to look their actual oh age. Oh my gosh! <laughs> Nightmare. Don't give the morphing power to celebrities is what we're learning here. I mean, in general, yeah. But do you think it undoes, like, sun damage? Because, like, a lot, like, I don't know how much of aging, but, like, there's a part of aging that's, like, the sun has damaged your skin. Would it just undo all of that? Would you yeah, have, like, yeah. magical baby skin? I think, I think yes. <laughs> but we don't see that, so I assume no. It's, like, very inconsistent. I don't know about this. <laughs> Are you suddenly doubting the underpinnings of the series, Gray? Eventually, we're going to talk about science. <laughs> yeah, wait, so do we have more stuff to say? We'll probably come back to some of the Lawrence stuff. But before we leave this, the the mom stuff again, just as it relates to Lauren's character, right? Like, the fact that she is willing... she She's only in the situation where she chooses death over, over being blind again because she saves Tobias from his, like, bird versus helicopter mm-hmm. battle. Which is, like, again, it's just... She, it's reducing her to a prop in Tobias's life. Yep. He's like, his whole problem in this book is, I need validation that my mom really loves me, that she would die for me. And then he gets it by the end of the book. Yep. Yeah. And there's no other consequence from that. And it's I like, fulfilling this yeah. crucial mom narrative of like sacrificing herself for her children. You know what your dad did for you? Did. He gave up his whole life and yeah. went back to fight and get killed by Yerks. Come on. <laughs> it's true. Also, like, I, I did have a moment, so she comes to, like, save him in the middle of the helicopter battle and gets shot, and he thinks that she has died or she's dying or whatever, and this is the whole, like, more vote, no, I would rather be, whatever. And I found that also, like, just very dumb, not least because logistically, like, what are you doing? I don't understand how you thought this was going to help <laughs> at all, like, at all. It just, it's, it was... It was an absurd choice, and it did just go with the... Tobias is all about, like, moms sacrificing for their kids and, like, loving their kids more than anything else. And at one point, he does have to be like, I mean, parents do that. (laughs) Because, like, Cassie's dad is right there. Like, what are you doing? I just... It was, like, a completely bizarre view of motherhood as sacrifice and putting your children first and not being a real person because the only value you have is in relation to your kids. Yeah. Which is a narrative. It's Edris's only quote-unquote redeeming quality also. Oh my gosh, yes. Ugh. You're right. Good point. So, sorry, while we're speaking of parents, I just remember the thing with Rachel's dad where, you know, her parents are divorced, her dad lives in another city, they get out and Jordan is like, well, what about, what about dad? And Rachel's like, I'll... I'll tell him where yeah. to find us. And Stone she's cold lying. Lying. Yeah, <laughs> like it's clearly a lie. But like also so sad. Like they can't save her dad. She must be having all sorts of feelings about that. You know what? You don't see her in this book, her talking to Tobias about that in nope. relation to all their parent stuff. Yeah. I know, limited real estate. Had to spend a lot on curing Lauren's blindness. So ridiculous. Yeah. Uh, so, Gray, I know you want to complain about this too, but I'll, I'll just. The beginning of this book, Rachel says to Tobias. I know you have to eat it as a hawk. She brings him a McDonald's hamburger. Oh, yeah. And I was like, vindication. Tobias has to eat in his hawk form. Yes. I've been on this side of the debate. Uh-huh. Maybe I was remembering this moment. But, but this book abuses canon about how morphing technology works so much that I feel I cannot claim vindication <laughs> for this earlier you have to eat in morph moment. Because maybe 
maybe none of the stuff should be trusted for what it says about how things work. I so, had to learn rules. <laughs> Wait, Tobias spells out rules. They aren't all the rules, but he numbers them anyway. He told me the rules, and then, no, just, no, they just making him up. Just whatever. We decided that in this particular case, f*** it. Does this book violate morphing canon? Yeah. Yes, it does. How so? Ask a field device acquiring Tobias. You can't oh. acquire Tobias. You can't. I know That's you can't right. because I had to learn a fucking rule about not being able to acquire morphed animals. But if he, if like the Elemis gave him back his morphing power, could he have like, no. he calls himself a Nothlet, but could he have no. like undone no. that part of it? No, he can't <laughs> because he is still in morph. Just because extra magic got put on top of the first kind of magic doesn't mean you can undo the first kind of magic. He is still in morph. Doesn't make any. Here's how I know he's still in morph because somewhere out in fucking Z space, there's a bag of goo with his name on it. Like that doesn't. You, you can't. You can't acquire Tobias. <sighs> and the Escafil yeah. device just works on its own. Yes, I mean that does sort of match thirty nine, which annoys me, but. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was, I noticed the thing where she acquired Tobias, and I took it as like, okay, I guess he is no longer nothleted because he, this is now the body that he can morph from, so you can acquire it. it I, I see your point, though. It, that seems maybe fake. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. Also, just while we're on, science corner. Science corner. Please see the quotation marks, air quotes. I see them. Everyone will hear that. It's Everyone not really a corner. It's real science. <laughs> just... As a reminder, these children do not have elephant, wolf, or tiger DNA just floating around in their bloodstreams. They don't. That's not how anything works. <laughs> yeah, no, I was I was so excited to see the Yerks doing more sciencey stuff, but I was like, also no. Like I it made so little sense to me that I actually didn't realize how stupid it was until we started having this conversation. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, they must have been left leaving their human blood behind. No. <laughs> and that's traceable, obviously, because that is traceable. That's their actual blood, yes. right? Yeah, and no. the, like, and of course, like you could, if you matched the blood at the gardens, you could be like, oh, they acquired this specific animal, and what does uh -huh. that tell us, right? Like that, the human and animal tracing independently makes sense. The thing that the animorphs are worried about, which is animals and human blood, I was like, oh, the animorphs are just wrong about that. But no, I guess that's how it's supposed to be working. So also, this was. 2000, where were we in terms of like DNA sequencing? I mean, I guess it's the year, so they just have more advanced technology. Was this just anticipating the whole like 23andMe type thing where like, okay, we did a bunch of DNA matches. I mean, I guess you could already well, test for parentage. You yeah, could do, like, turn of the century was, was actually conservative, right? Because like mapping the genome was mm -hmm. supposed to be, they thought it would take a lot longer than it did, mm. right? Like it hasn't proven to be as fruitful in terms of like, Cures, controlling yeah, yeah like sure. human biology or whatever uh, obviously but i think that this was uh, not too optimistic about what people thought about dna in 2000 yeah so the computer database is very <laughs> very silly but here's my headcanon for it that makes me love it which is that some enterprising yerk months or perhaps years ago went to esplin and was like look why don't we do this blood tracing thing and Esplin was like, yes, but only if you build a giant computer terminal thing where I can see a big map. And the, the scientist is like, but that's not necessary, sir. And then that scientist was killed. Yeah, and was the number two scientist had to implement the plan. But 
blocking the effort from going forward was the giant terminal room. And they spent all of this money building a giant terminal room with a map that could display it in real time. And they paid for the broadband internet and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause which, it needed to be connected to the internet for some reason. Right. 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 Didn't have anything to do with it. And like, and the whole bit where they're like, the controllers are going into the gardens and getting the animal DNA. And then like the zoo employees, like we don't have any red tailed hawks. And the people are like, no, no, we needed to get all the animals. We're also going to get killed. Right. Like, it's like, I just love the idea that the fundamental idea is sound, but the implementation is so bad because of Esplin Accurate. messing it all up. Yeah, I mean, Esplin's very bad at things. Can I uh, nitpick a particular thing in this? Okay, so they're, they're like, the sharing is organizing a blood drive. Okay, we have to figure out, like, we're going to have to hack into all of the blood banks in the city to figure out which one has the best security to figure out where which blood bank is controlled by the Yerks. Just go to the one in the flyer for the blood drive. Like, that's, <laughs> that's going to be the blood bank that the Yerks control. Because that's the one they're advertising. Uh, that's a very, uh, very good point. That's a great, that's a great bottle. That's... I mean, it's also really stupid that all, like, all of these, like, this was 2000. You still had to have, like, dial-up internet. Like, we still had to do the little dial-up sound, like... All of these blood banks, like their databases, are just like online no, and hackable. Yeah, like this is no. the thing uh, that the series keeps thinking: like every computer is always connected. They have to like the a internet. GeoCities website with like a picture, like an animated HTML thing of blood <laughs> scrolling by. Right? Yeah, that like, tells that's... you like what date like the blood drives are on. But their database isn't in the cloud. It's not just connected to the internet all the time. No. Do you know what else is not in the cloud connected to the internet at this point? Or and I hope. Cloud ever <laughs> so he they hack into hospitals labs clinics community blood banks they all open right up for us kind of scary when you think about it your complete medical history is just a click away available to any nut job with internet access um. HIPAA came out in 1996 it has been implemented by this point no you f***ing can't like even <laughs> now when we have internet access there are incredible firewalls to prevent any nut job with an internet access from hacking into like my local community health center and finding my medical database like no you can't yeah yeah they don't understand hacking in this series no although it turns out that they did hack the cia relatively easily <laughs> and the yerks have better firewalls than the cia which no they don't i don't know to me that's plausible <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I, I want to talk about Axe and Marco. Yes, please. I have so much Axe and Marco stuff. Yes. Yes. Axe built his scoop soon after he came to Earth. According to him, it was a smaller version of a typical Antelite home. He'd had to do some remodeling when Marco took up part-time residence with him. Moving in together. So sweet. Axe was an alien of few possessions, but Marco was a boy with lots of toys. And then I was like, can we just call them the boy toys now? Toy Boys. The Toy Boys. Yes, that's them. And then we had this excellent exchange where Marco is complaining. He says, but unless you count the Victoria's Secret webpage, there are no babes in my life anymore. There were no babes in your old life, I said. Oh, very nice, Tobias. Go for the jugular. You've got Rachel tending to your every need. Me, I've got Axeman. Adorable. So good. Then he says, I'll trade you right now, straight across. But I think he's lying. I think so, too. Yeah, I'm sold on this now. What about the amazing shirtless Marco moment? 
Did that catch your attention? <gasps> no, I'm sure it caught Axe's attention. Please tell me what it was, Ted. No, Cassie giggles. Oh. So <laughs> it's it's a uh, oh right 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 giggle. when they <laughs> they take off Marco's shirt to make the blue bands for the thing. Yeah. Ot three nice. There's just I don't know. I ship Marco with everyone. Not myself. I Marco Axe is I definitely stand making a, a strong showing. In, yeah, in it's like it's been, you know, very much background, but it's shown up a lot here. I also, Marco had a lot of good moments of supporting Tobias. Like, um, oh, yeah. he, he has this bit where he's like, Tobias has feelings about Lauren and Marco's like, she's a controller. You got to let it go. Like, I've been mm. through this. I've been through this. And then when Tobias flies away um, after the whole thing with Jake's family, Marco and Axe show up, and they're like, yeah, we kind of knew you would be doing this. We're here to help. Right. <laughs> Actually, what they say... Oh, we should talk about that scene. What they say is, you know, your way in is the dog, which, no, it's not. Just morph a fly. Don't morph her guide dog. That is so unnecessarily, like, difficult to do. And you aren't going to be able to imitate a guide dog. Like, guide dogs are very specifically trained. It's not just, don't pull too hard, you'll knock her over. It's like... She'll have signals for mm -hmm. the dog that he's not going to recognize. Like, it's just... It was not. a stupid idea. But it a is very cute that idea. Axe and Marco, like, show up to support. And Jake knows yes. that they're going. He's Aww. like, he's going to need help. Like, I, he's being stupid. Like, go help <laughs> That's them. That's so true. I know. So the dog thing, Aww. the dog thing is stupid. And I know that this is... I, I We've talked about... We've complained about it. So I, I would like to re say, remember those complaints. But... The bit where he becomes her guide dog, and she's like, "My mom is like touching me, and it's so nice." Oh, and then, oh, and then he's like, "This isn't how I imagined it would be. I imagined that she'd be like tucking to me into bed, and then she would kiss my nose good night, and then she kisses Champ's nose, and I'm like, oh god, this is so sweet.' That was really sweet. And also, that scene at the convenience store was one of the funniest things in this book. Mm. Um, this whole thing with Axe. I'm gonna ruin it for great. you, but we can enjoy it first. Okay, let's let's enjoy it first. So, first of all, they go into the store. There's like one cashier in the 7-Eleven. It's like nighttime or whatever. And they've decided to just be like, as Marco said it, teenage punks. So Axe sidles up to the cashier. Do not worry, he said. We are irresponsible teenage hoodlums, possibly gang members, but you are not in any danger. The guy gave Axe a blank stare. His gang's from out of town, I explained. <laughs> Which... I mean, I think hoodlum, probably not a great word, but uh, also hilarious. Uh, and then when they're trying to scare Lauren into giving up the dog, which don't, that's just mean. Don't do that. Um, Axe says, she does not seem to be afraid of us. She's probably been through worse, I said tightly. Ah, Axe nodded. She does not understand how menacing we are. He tapped her on the shoulder. You do not know me, he said, but I am a juvenile delinquent. I do not trust authority figures. I probably will not graduate from high school, and statistics say my present rowdiness and vandalism will likely lead to more serious crimes. I am a dangerous fellow, and I am causing mayhem in this store. He reached behind her and pulled three jars of baby food from the top shelf, shoved them behind a box of macaroni, shuffled the cheese whiz in front of the marshmallow fluff, tossed a bag of lady shavers onto a bag of hamburger buns. There, I have now shamelessly destroyed the symmetry of this shelf Undoing hours of labor by underpaid store employees. If you could see me, you would be frightened. So I think there's a lot to unpack there, but also it's hilarious. Ted, ruin it for us. <laughs> yeah, I, I, it is funny, but I found it really cringy too. I think the, the part that bothers me the most is the like statistics say thing. Because mm. like, what we have here is we have a 
Hispanic kid or like a, you know, half Hispanic kid, another mixed race kid and Tobias going into a store being like, quote unquote, hoodlums and mm. like actually bullying Lauren and stealing okay. her dog and intimidating her and saying like, you know, like, don't make a fuss or like Poochie gets it or whatever. Right. Like, and Axe is kind of like playing up the stereotype of like, oh, I am probably in a gang. Statistics say that I'm going, the like things will lead to more violence when like the truth of the matter is. In the year 2000, there was a huge, like, moral panic in the United States about mm. gangs that was, like, way overblown. So, like, and and also that went away the next year when everyone started worrying about terrorism instead, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, the, 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 like, the fact that Axe is playing off this, like, oh, statistics say thing as kind of like a ha-ha, everyone knows that, like, bad neighborhoods exist and gangs exist and, like, Axe, of course, is a good kid and he never do anything wrong. It's, like... It's like really not acknowledging the the truth of the matter, which is that this whole idea that Axe is playing into is like a fake fear, and it makes me mm-hmm. feel uncomfortable. It also is a little bit the um, the thing where it's like, at what point do you stop pretending to torture someone and you're actually torturing them? Mm-hmm. Like they're not torturing Lauren; they're just like they're they're bullying her though, and like they're actually doing that. Like they're yeah. not pretending to do it; they're doing it. And they're also playing into stereotypes of this neighborhood where, mm-hmm. you know, that's that's very run down, that, you know, isn't, people aren't taking care of their property and they aren't taking care of each other and whatever. And, like, they're really playing into some of these stereotypes in a way that I found really uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. and as Ted was saying, not examining the fact that the, the moral panic was overblown doesn't erase the fact that there are neighborhoods that are not cared for by their municipalities. So one of the things that they point out that Tobias realizes, he's like, oh my God, my mom is shopping at a convenience store. Well, I guess there isn't a Safeway nearby. And it's like, yes, let me introduce you to food deserts. Like that is a thing. (laughs) And it's not, not exactly played for laughs, but like kind of all part part of this. The axe thing is definitely played for laughs. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but you're not really getting the, like, there's some pretty systematic, a lot of it's systematic and institutionalized racism that's going into this. But some of it's just, like, systematic downtrodding of the people who are forced to live in these neighborhoods and are redlined or whatever it is and don't have access to the things that might make this neighborhood prettier. And to to kind of use that as a fear tactic in some ways is, like, mm. very 90s and very cringy. Oh, now I feel bad for finding it funny. And that's why I said yeah. I was going to ruin it for you. <laughs> no, that's legit. I also, I that's will, all really legit. I will say, I've been listening to the podcast You're Wrong About, which mm-hmm. I love. So good. It does a lot of revisiting, like, media stories and, and cultural criticism from, like, especially the 80s and 90s and being mm-hmm. like, hey, wait a minute, let's think about this for a second. And they did have a good episode about the moral panic of gangs, which mm-hmm. we can link to or something. Yeah, I think there's just something that, like, your point about the, like, systemic issues, I think is what bothers me. It's like... The, I feel like this is, a, this is, again, stepping out to the writer's perspective. It's like the writer is taking it as read that, like, oh, these are, like, facets of society that everyone knows and acknowledges, and I'm not going to think about the deeper issues here. I'm just going to play off of it in kind of a funny way. And so, like, it's not really that because it's just the animorphs leaning into the stereotypes, it doesn't really bother me as much as, like, the way that, like, Lauren is presented. But, like, it's, I don't know if the owner of the 7-Eleven was like, you're not from any gang around here or whatever, like that would have been like way worse. Um, Mm. But 
it just makes me think that uh, I want to say the the writer didn't was being very thoughtless when it comes to the it seems like it, yeah. the larger picture of the city and like the city isn't a character in the books. Yeah, that's the, true. It's really whatever human society. To be at the moment. Yeah, human yeah. society isn't a character like. It doesn't. It's all painted with a broad brush, a broad universal brush, compared to like the threat of aliens and stuff. So like, it totally makes sense that it's it's like out of scope. I guess like five years later, I could see a writer making a joke about like them being terrorists in the same kind of way, and that's what makes mm. it cringy. Another thing that's very nineties about the way they handle race is like you would think that. I think one of the things that doesn't sit right with me is that Axe is like sort of dressed up as a non-white teenager and but he never faces any he never mm. has to deal with the nuances of human society that would come with that yeah so like there would be there's a great animorphs book about axe being a human teen and like cassie and marco having to be like yeah this is what we deal with and the other animorphs being like wait what, what? as like a yeah. special <laughs> episode of the week right like but that never it's like not on their radar at yeah all. yeah and the cover model for axe is white yeah <laughs> for some reason Seriously. I would like to complain about one other piece of weak plotting, which mm, is nice. when they're leaving the blood bank caper, um, uh, the grandmother controller, who's basically Dolores Umbridge. I don't know if we want to talk about her mm. more. No, that's all I wanted to say about her. She's Dolores Umbridge. Well, also, she's another human leading a bunch of horc because they can't, like, yeah, the yeah. controllers can't lead themselves, weirdly. I do hate how she goes from, like, being an interesting character to grandma controller to psycho granny by the time yeah. that she explodes at the Didn't end. Didn't like that. But anyway... She is chasing them and Birdmorph out of the blood bank and she shoots the alley and the alley explodes and Tobias is like, there's like a chapter break and Tobias is like, did half of us just die? And then they rise out of the smoke and it's and like, fine. nope, they're fine. And they move on. <laughs> it's like really weak cliffhanger plotting that I feel like the series yeah. usually doesn't do. It was also like Rachel attacked the blood bank and was like then surrounded by controllers, but like ran off to the circus and was fine. Yep. Like it was, Yeah. It was very much... I mean, she did get the circus in trouble because there was a rogue elephant, so they had to shut down and, like, leave town. So, question mark. Well, we know how what Applegrove thinks about circuses from book seven. Fair enough. I feel like this this book, more transparently than most, had a lot of, like, uh, we wanted to go their way here, but not in this other place. So, Mm. you know, hand wave. Um, I also wanted to to mention Rachel and Tobias in this book. They have a lot of really sweet moments. They do. Because um, I thought, like, I feel like they're so comfortable with each other in this book. I really, 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 really yeah. like it. I love it I, so I wish there had been a little more angst about, like, shared mom issues or something. But they're just, like, really sweet yeah. to each other constantly. It's wonderful. And they're so supportive of each other. Like, Rachel just shows up for him time and time again. She rescues him, like, a lot. And I love it. It's very good. Uh-huh. And even the, like, in 48, we had this, I'm helping feed Tobias because his meadow's drying up thing. And it's, like, very fraught from Rachel's side. And then here we see her bringing him the McDonald's. And they, like, they share the meal. And it's a little awkward. And he feels a little weird about it. But it's it's fine. <laughs> I really, I like this exchange because it was so, it's so Rachel to present it this way. She flies up and she's like, look, before you get your feathers in a wad, just listen. I know I don't have to baby you. I know you can take care of yourself. But I also know your happy little meadow is about to dry up and the weather guy on Channel 6 isn't predicting rain anytime soon. She pulled a Big Mac from the bag. So eat this and don't give me any grief, okay? And he says, that's one of the things I like best about Rachel. I don't need to admit to her that hawk life can be a little stressful. She just knows and tries to help. But she doesn't feel sorry for me. Or at least she doesn't let me see her feel sorry for me. She lets me have my dignity. And it seems like they found this really nice balance. And I also love that we got to see, like, 
snippy Rachel, again, like sort of in a positive context, like Tobias really enjoys that side of her. That works for him. But where's Rage Rachel? Where's Super Rachel? Like, it's so weird. Like, she's not, she's only like that in her own books now. It's so weird. It's it's a really weird characterization because this is the thing about Rachel that I love. She charges right in and lifts up her mom and Grizzly Bear more from, like, charges back out. But she also is, like, a truly caring partner who just wants her boyfriend to be, to, like, be able to eat. At one point after that moment that Jenny just read, she gives him the, the like meat patty from the hamburger to eat as a hawk. And uh, he's, as he's eating it, she says to him, you know, Tobias, we have very weird dates. <laughs> and it's just like, it's so sweet. And she's wonderful in this book. And, and I think this is one of the things that I was so, was most angry about in the last book is that we didn't get this side of Rachel and it's the side of her that I like the most. Um, so I was happy to see it here. Although I'm, I'm going to maybe argue that the last book, like, Cryak was trying to turn her into, like, Rachel Rage Monster, and, like, it didn't take, because this is who she really is, like... But, but, in 48, she is paranoid that the other Animorphs think she's losing it, and, like, Tobias... True, but that wasn't a Cryak dream. No, I know, but, like, <laughs> Tobias no, is never... Right. Tobias yeah. is never... He never... He, he doesn't see at all the side of her mm-hmm. that I think there is reason to worry about, right? Because it's, like, it's mm-hmm. not like Rachel is, like, a happy warrior, she does yeah. have some darkness in her. I feel like mm-hmm. that that idea. They has... haven't figured out how to integrate it. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's like like what I would love to see. Oh, she saves them all, and then she kills some extra work video she didn't need to, and people are like, "Oh, Rachel, that was a, like you didn't need to do that." And she's mm-hmm. like, "It doesn't matter, right?" Like, yeah. that would be a more oh, nuanced oh. and realistic portrayal of her, right? I don't want to see that though. No, I know, but like that's that's kind of <laughs> I what know, yeah. if you want to balance those two sides, yeah. you should so- show both of them. It's a little like in the earlier series where in her books she never went shopping Mm. like they hadn't figured out how to integrate the sides of her and they really they seem to not be able to integrate Rachel from the outside and Rachel from the inside very well Mm -hmm. yeah they they haven't figured that out and where is she where is her like she doesn't seem to be dealing with the fact that she just survived this ordeal with Cryak and killed David yeah Yeah. like yeah no mention again it's just a weird, uh, you know, I don't know. Maybe they'll come back to it again, or maybe it's forgotten forever. Yeah, it just, she's so inconsistently characterized, and I, I love her so much that that annoys me. My yeah. my recollection is that it's it's more, we do get some good nuanced Rachel from the outside in future books, but yes. I, I don't, I'm not 100% sure, and it probably will read differently mm-hmm. this time around. Yeah, I, I do want to talk a little bit about what their relationship says about about Tobias and what we mm-hmm. learned about him from that. Mm-hmm. So we've already talked a little bit about his like mommy issues, but one of the things is that he understands like as in the passage that Jenny just read that she's not making him feel uncomfortable about this, but he feels uncomfortable about it. Again, this is the Tobias theme of like, I'm a hug, I'm a boy, I'm a hug. I'm a... But he's, what I find really interesting about it is that part of the reason for this is he doesn't know what to do with somebody caring about him. So I wonder how much of that's going to change now he has Lauren. But part of it, too, is that Tobias is inflexible in some ways. Hmm. In a way that I actually think is a little bit parallel to Cassie's inflexibility, but kind of in different ways. So he talks about, for example, what self-respecting hawk lets his girlfriend feed him and buy Hmm. him vitamin drops and let him sleep inside when it's raining, that kind of thing. And um, he, and then later on, he has this great moment where he's thinking about Marco and mm-hmm. which I just, I really, really like this. And so he says, 
uh, this is after the like, uh, Rachel is tending to Tobias's every need and Axeman is tending to, to Marcus's. And Tobias thinks to himself, Marco's an opportunist. He would probably adjust to my bizarre version of hawk life better than I had. He'd have no problem with Rachel feeding him. He'd live in her room, wait for her to bring him snacks, print himself in her mirror all day while she was at school. Marco wouldn't make himself live by some glorified rules of the hunt or whatever it was I felt compelled to live by. I said, okay, I, I don't know that opportunist yeah. is the right word there, but I think that rest of that is spot on. Like, Marco is surprisingly flexible. He's very practical. He understands that he just needs to do what needs to get done, and he doesn't have this, like, weird moral compulsion to, like, figure out who he is and why and, like, is it okay for him to eat a hamburger? He just does what needs to get done. And I think Tobias and, to a lesser extent, Cassie feel so compelled to live by their own moral codes that they never take the time right. to think about whether that moral code is appropriate to the situation. Yeah. I think, yeah, Marco and Rachel are both practical in that way, and Tobias and, and Cassie are not. That's, like, a really interesting divide. I think that's why you do get sometimes Marco and Rachel working together, mm -hmm. like, for the B thing in book 40, like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. It's like Tobias, it's not just like sort of Tobias's bad luck, quote unquote, mm -hmm. but it's his personality yeah. too. Mm. Also, I wanted to, to mention the thing at the end of the book where they're hanging out in the new Horfager Valley. Lauren is there. Uh, Tobias and Jake are sitting at a picnic table. He says, I was in human morph for no reason other than somehow it felt right. I'd never really been comfortable in my human body, even back when I was a regular non-Nothlet kid. But now, with Lauren here, I wanted to at least try it out, for two hours at a time anyway. And that that is pointing to something interesting that, like, we've talked about, like, Tobias wasn't really that happy in his human life. And part of that was that he didn't feel like he had anyone who cared about him, and now he sees this this possibility for it. And it's maybe helping to heal some some wounds from his past? I don't know. I feel like we don't get enough emotional depth. I know. Like, it's mother. not like Lauren like, is like, I don't remember you, but I can't wait to get to know you. Right. Yeah. <laughs> She's playing Frisbee with her dog. It feels like there's a lot missing and it's like something these books do, right? Like they don't always give you the emotional resolution for the things. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and also it seemed like the more important thing, like that the book thought was more important was like her sacrificing herself for him. Like moms do. It feels like this. I'm going to try being human a little bit is like fitting with Tobias series themes, but not really with this book's themes, right? Mm. Like mm. it's kind of, it's kind of like coasting on, we know that Tobias has these issues, even though he didn't think about them that much in this book. And that's sort of okay. It's a series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, listen, you've known your mom for like a hot second and you're like, I guess I'll try being human for two hours of time for her. Why don't you do that with Rachel? Hold her damn hand. What's wrong with you? <gasps> he did morph human to have the meal with her. I'm just saying. This your theme is like, I'm her bird friend, I can't be her boyfriend. Like, yes, you can, for two hours at a time. Come on. I also, about the ending, the, I felt like it was a really grim note to end on. Talking mm. about Jake's family again. Mm -hmm. Do we have anything to say about that? Oh, yeah. I mean, we sort of talked about it, how they've like, switched places, mm -hmm. right? But, like, this thing, like, Jake's like, I don't know what will happen to them now. And Tobias is like, well, they'll stay alive. Like, Mr. Roman will keep them alive as, like, leverage for us. As long as we keep fighting, he'll keep them alive. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's intense. And it's, in particular, the, like, Tobias says, they're still alive. We can still save them. And Jake says, can we? He picked at the splintered edge of the picnic table. As yeah. long as we keep fighting, this or one will keep them alive. Worried about Jake. Let's see how this goes. Right. And also, like, the he's not 
fighting his dream is dead and his new dream is like well maybe they won't die right <laughs> yeah. instead of like we can go back to the way things yeah. were yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's a very grim very anamorphic ending again. 90s moments yeah ted what was your favorite 90s moment no there were a lot of good ones <laughs> yes um okay so i think the one that i was most tickled by was the that um jordan and sarah are watching cat dog cat uh-huh. dog <laughs> So I never watched Cat Dog. I knew of its existence, but I don't. I don't know if I ever actually saw it. So this morning, Ted sang me the song, and it was great. Wait, Ted sang the song. One fine day with a wolf and a purr, a baby was born, and it caused a little stir. No blue buzzer, no three-eyed frog, just a canine feline, a little cat dog. Cat dog, cat dog, do do do. Alone in the world with a little cat dog. Yay! Amazing. <laughs> And I'm then, so glad I got yeah, to do that Yeah, they call Axe a, po- a Pokemon. Pokemon. And they uh-huh. need to train him. I love that. Uh-huh. What else was uh-huh. there? Well, uh, well, when they're bullying Lauren, Tobias says to Marco, don't, like quoting him, don't call the cops or Fido here gets it. Maybe you shouldn't watch so much Nick at Night. I love that they're continually slamming their own TV show. It's fantastic. <laughs> These books oh. have an opinion about it. The um, I forget, what was the context for my other favorite line? Oh, yeah, when Tobias is morphing the dog, and he's, like, he has, like, a dog head and, like, I don't know, like, rump, like, rear end, but he is a hawk in the middle. (laughs) And Marco says, ew, nightmare on Sesame Street. That was so good. Such a good fly. Yes. At one point, also, Marco throws a TV guide at Tobias. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Things that don't matter anymore. Yeah, he had a CD tower in the scoop. Tobias describes the Animorphs as the cast of a Lifetime movie. Oh, that was a really interesting passage, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then he describes them. So Lifetime movie is the 90s moment. But I did, mm-hmm. do we have any more 90s moments? Because I want to talk about that. There was a Barney backpack. That was pretty great. Perfect. Axe was wearing it to Honestly, carry the key. a toy store is pretty 90s. Oh, there's still toy stores. I don't know. Yeah, there's, there's just well, Amazon. they aren't open right now. But Toys R Us is gone, right? I uh, no, I wanted to talk about the beginning because weirdly, this book does more than any of the books we've read recently to describe the plot of the Animorphs. Hmm. It's one oh, of the, yeah, the best. Classic exposition. Yeah, like the whole first chapter is Tobias like carefully walking through who they are, what they're doing, and why, and kind of major plot beats in a way that I feel like we really haven't had recently. And I thought that was really interesting. I feel like part of it was that he needed to, like, be really thorough so he'd have an excuse to talk about Lauren. But I think I think also, yeah, it's, it's a good thing and for also, them like, to the book, This book felt a lot more like, like you were saying at the beginning, Gray, it's like kind of a classic Animorphs team. Like, mm. they're supporting each other. Even they go on a couple missions. does have this huge shift. Even though it upends the series. Right. But, like, it, it, it felt very comforting, mm-hmm. especially after the past three books where it's been very different. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Anything else we want to say before I predict the next book? Ooh, okay. I don't think so. The Ultimate, which is confusingly not the last book. I wanted to point out that, so I have a little list of the titles and like uh, Mm -hmm. who they are. And some of these are very funny if you put the title of the book with the person. So, for example, the last Cassie book was Unexpected Cassie. And this one is Ultimate Cassie. <laughs> well, first we get Super Rachel and then we get Ultimate Cassie. Yes. And then uh, then we've got Absolute Marco, Sacrifice Axe, which I feel is an instruction. 
Um, answer That's a Jake. prediction right there. And then beginning beginning Rachel, which is like not overly helpful, but <laughs> sacrifice acts is like my favorite combination. That is amazing. Okay. You're clear for the inside cover. Ooh. All right. Um, this is a Cassie book. The cover's horrifying. She's morphing into an owl. The little cut text is, now there are no more secrets. And the inside is her as an owl flying through a city. I um, wish I could help predict this. I know, oh, maybe I know two things that happen in this book. Um, you want to help me predict it based on this? No, no, no. Darn. No. Okay. That's really helping. No, those would be giveaways. Sometimes I like to try and get away with um, Okay, so. <laughs> Very sneaky. I think that this is going to be another more philosophical Cassie book. And part of the debate is going to be um, a kind of internal debate amongst the Animorphs. We're going to go back to the, like, whether we should make, make the fight public or not. And Cassie is going to have a moral dilemma about whether bringing people into the into a fight which in which they could get hurt, Ooh. injured, or killed is she's weighing that against the need to have more people fighting with them, um, and so they're going to have to figure out exactly how to open up the animorphs if they're going to do it, and then how to do it. Ooh, intriguing. Where do you think that's going to go? If that's the choice she's facing, what's what's going to happen by the end of the book? By the end of the book, they're going to have decided that, yes, they need to open it up and they will have figured out, like, the first round of people that they're going to, like, tell. Mm. I don't know. Something like that. What other sort of follow-up or fallout from the events of 49 or, like, the past five books will there be? Um, there will be absolutely no follow-up to the blood bank plan. Not a thing anymore. <laughs> Um, and we're going to have to figure out more about, maybe there's something about like their parents all being there. Oh, I hope so. Maybe like a little bit of a debate over whether their, their parents get to fight or whether they're going to like leave them behind and go off on their own. And, uh, and maybe somebody finally tells Lauren about Elfengor. That would be a good thing to do. Yeah. Any other follow-up questions? I don't have any that aren't too on the nose. Okay. So. <laughs> it's a pretty good prediction. Yeah, this sounds momentous. I'm excited to read about it. I don't know. That's my prediction for next time. All right. See you then. If you want to find us, we are at animorphology.com and at animorphology on Twitter. Subscribe on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And don't forget to rate us, review us, and recommend us to your friends. And if you want to read along, you can find a link to the Animorphs ebooks on our website. Um, and... Gray, what do you have that's jangling? Um, Bridget. Come on, Mr. Three.